as, uh, as Sarah said, we are in a series um, on resting, and, and we're talking about this uh, concept called a rule of life. Our, our mission here at Mosaic is to unite people in the way of Jesus. And so for us, if you, if you ask to think the question, what is the way of Jesus, the, our rule of life and the practices that, that encompass the rule of life is, to us, the way of Jesus. How do you follow Jesus? Well, we are doing this rule of life together. And so we've broken up uh, the, the different categories of the rule, and we started a few weeks ago uh, with resting is our first topic. And so we're in the third week and, and talking about the second practice of eliminating hurry. That's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, last week, Sarah talked about Sabbath and entering into Sabbath rest. She told you uh, from the scripture, uh, illustrated how to practice the Sabbath. She used our, our family's example of how we do family Sabbath together, even as, as a, a, you know, she's full-time working, part-time pastoring. I'm, I'm full-time, part-time pastor. Like, how do we make all of this happen? And we have two great kids, but they are kids. So how do they Sabbath? So I would recommend you listen to that and, and pick our brains. If you feel like this is something that you want to participate in, but you're not quite sure, uh, we'd love to field any questions that you have that's worked for us, things we've tried, things that haven't worked for us. Because Sabbath and rest have shifted over the years for us. I'll get into this at the, at the end here, but seasons of life really change how you practice rest and how you're able to practice Sabbath. Uh, just be aware of that. So eliminating hurry. Here's what I say, I'll say. If you are a teenager or if you're in your 20s, uh, you will not believe I, a word I say today about eliminating hurry for your life. And that's okay. You need to just kind of file this for later and maybe come back to it in a couple decades because now in my mid-40s, I know what it's like to sneeze and if I do it the wrong way, I have a crick in my neck for the rest of the day. Or like, you know, when you're like laying down and you stretch and in the... Like I can throw my back out somehow, you know? Yeah, have you ever done those stretches where it's like, oh, it feels good, just a little bit. Oh, nope, I pulled my calf muscle. Like what, what in the world is that, right? It's like my body is constantly reminding me uh, to slow down because I'm not good at this. I get anxious, particularly around the areas of time, time boundaries. I don't like to be late. I don't like to go over on time. I get super anxious and short with people. Like I'm not... Super fun to go to the movies with if we're running a little bit behind, which is like perpetually every time we go to the movies. Because I like, I want to see the previews and I want to get my money's worth. And not everybody loves that experience. They want to be there. And it's like, stop by the concession stand. I'm like, why? You can have it delivered to your, 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 your seat there if you would have thought ahead. Of, like, it's a whole thing for me. You know what I mean? So I'm not, and my body's constantly going, okay, old man, that's all nice. But, you know, just take a seat for a day, you know? So, so if you're a teen, if you're in your 20s, I remember what it was like to eat hot garbage three times a day and get four hours of sleep and be raring to go the next morning with no coffee needed. I remember that. So you're not gonna believe me. That's okay. We could still be friends. Just file it away for later or watch your parents just nod in agreement on this and whatever, we'll keep going. So as, as I'll argue shortly... I do believe eliminating hurry 
maybe one of the most crucial practices to incorporate in our lives and in our rule. By the way, I'll just mention this. We have these Rule of Life workbooks. They're at the welcome table and the back doors. You can go online and get a digital rule. That way you can have it on your, your device or whatever. The handy dandy uh, cover not included. That's, that's bonus nerdiness for y'all. Uh, and so I'm embracing that. You can too. Uh, but I, as I said, I believe this is a crucial, if not foundational practice to pay attention to and incorporate into our lives this idea of eliminating hurry. Because if we're always in a hurry, meaning we're trying to fit too many activities and way too little time, we probably won't get around to any of the other spiritual rhythms and habits to become healthy, mature, and deep disciples of Jesus. Ronald Rollheiser says this in his book, The Holy Longing, today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly following together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within, which is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have interior depth whatsoever. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, whoa, conviction there, okay, uh, the sports stadium and the shopping mall and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, I love that phrase, pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. So as Rollheiser says, there's a number of things colliding together at once, busyness being just one of them. But sometimes when we can identify one thing to focus our attention on, it, it can, be, can become a catalyst for major change. In other words, if we look at eliminating hurry in our lives, identifying where we're too uh, stuffed to the gills and activities, and if we address that, slow down, I think we can have a domino effect in our lives and in our church community that we're, we're fully present with each other. We're present with God and we're able to enter into what community life and what spiritual life really is. Now, you know, when I say eliminate hurry, I don't mean that there are times where you'd better hurry up. Like if you're trying to relive your high school glory days on the softball team and you're, you're stealing third, yes, by all means, hurry as fast as you can. If, if you see your toddler heading towards your nice new leather couch with a pair of scissors in hand, by all means intervene as quickly as you can for their safety and your sanity, okay? So what I am talking about is this, like, he, like Rollheiser says, pathological busyness, pathological hurry. There are occasions where we hurry, and that's, that's good, and that's okay. But what I'm talking about is a life marked by exhaustion, because every moment is filled with work or distraction. A way of being where you feel like there's never enough time, too many yeses when you really need to say no, a shallow relationship with God and the constant looming feeling that you're letting someone down because you're not doing enough. Hurry is feeling like you're always behind and you're missing something or missing out on something. Hurry is not leaving enough time between meetings as a constant habit. Hurry is constantly being distracted and never being fully present to the person in front of you. Hurry is wishing you could speed up actions and slow down time. It means to be in fundamental disagreement with God and he, how he created the, the, the metaphysics of our universe, space and time in particular. Rollheiser again says this in the intro to a book by Ruth Haley Barton. There is a kind of hurry that is a form of violence exercised upon time. 
that is detrimental to our health, to our families, to our communities, and to our relationship with God. Admittedly, there are times when the demands of relationships, family, work, school, church, childcare, shopping, health, appearance, housework, meals, bill payments, commuting, accidents, interruptions, illnesses, whew, y'all, that was, that was a lot, and countless other things eat up more time than is seemingly available. Living under pressure is part of life. Still, we have to be careful not to rationalize. God didn't make a mistake in creating time. God made enough of it. When we cannot find enough time, and as the psalmist says, find ourselves getting up earlier and going to bed later because we have too much to do, we can see this as a sign that makes some changes in our lives. When we allow ourselves to be driven like this for too long, we end up doing violence to time, to ourselves, and to our blood pressure. So hurry is a soul sickness that needs to be addressed as such. Even people in the secular workplace environments, business professionals are identifying this idea of like there's too much and too little time to do anything about it. So they create like there's a mindfulness movement where you can download apps like Headspace or Calm and it will take you on guided meditations. And so you can be aware of your body and you can slow down. Those are good things. Like people, non-church people are trying to figure this out. Um, tech bros have this thing called monk mode where they just shut everything down so they can go into hyper-focus and deep work. Like the world is crying out for solutions to this. And the secret is that, and it's an open secret, because Christians have been practicing this and Jews before us for thousands and thousands of years, living in a slowed down pace in their lives connected to God. Hurry is a soul sickness, Everyone is in a hurry to get stuff done and get ahead. So I want you to consider this conversation John Ortberg, pastor and author, had with the late Dallas Willard. If you've never heard of, in particular, Dallas Willard, you're welcome. You need to read everything that he's ever written. Um, He says this, uh, John Ortberg, entering into a very busy season of ministry. And by the way, he was already in a a successful, like, megachurch pastor, author, speaker. Like, he, he just needed to know what to do about this next season of busyness. I called Dallas to ask him what I needed to do to stay spiritually healthy. There was a long pause. With Dallas, there was nearly always a long pause. And then he said slowly, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I quickly wrote that down. Most people take notes with Dallas. I've even seen his wife take notes, which my wife rarely does with me. I can, I can relate. Okay, Dallas, I responded. I've got that one. Now, what other spiritual nuggets do you have for me? I don't have a lot of time, and I want to get all the spiritual wisdom from you that I can. There's nothing else, he said, generously acting as if he didn't notice my impatience. Hurry, check this out, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So, are you surprised at Dallas Willard's answer? If you could answer that question, what is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day and age? How would you answer that? It would probably be something, I mean, maybe political, political partisanship, or it might be related to uh, digital na- uh, natives or uh, how, how we lack concentration. It could be something um, like global warming or the threats to the environment. It could be war. How would you answer that question? Dallas Willard says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life in order to be spiritually healthy and vibrant and mature as an apprentice to Jesus. 
Instead, instead of all the things that we try and do to make it through work and then distract ourselves and then go back to work and make it through our day, Dallas Willard is suggesting that there's another way we can live connected to God with each other and ourselves. Okay, so this is one of the main reasons we started out. We have five marks of formation. This is why we started out with resting because we don't want to be a church where we add more activities and demand more of your time and attention and you have to stuff more stuff in and figure out how to make it work. We actually want to ask you, if you wanna follow Jesus with us, if you wanna practice our rule, it may be that you need to subtract some things from your life first. You can't add more spiritual activity and think that you're going to mature into a holistically healthy disciple of Jesus. It may be that right now, some of the biggest decisions that you need to make about how seriously you want to follow Jesus is what things do I need to let go of in my life? In what areas do I need to slow down and let things go, place them in God's hands, place the results in God's hands, and just stay connected to him, okay? Instead of adding activities, in, in an already jam-packed life, you will first need to subtract some things to follow Jesus, okay? It really is this practice of eliminating hurry that makes all the other practices possible and doable. It's this practice that enables all the other ones to take root so we can be fruitful and be apprentices healthily of Jesus. So in order to journey further into God, like I said, you'll need to let some things go. Um, slow down, learn to rest, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is what, what the psalmist, what King David was on to when he says this in Psalm 46. This is verse one and two and then verse 10, which you'll probably be familiar with. It says this, God is our refuge and strength. He's a place that we can run to in times of trouble and ever-present help. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall in the heart of the sea. Now, we don't necessarily see that all happening in our day-to-day lives, but when just, just think of when the, the, the bills are coming in at a breakneck speed, when kids' activities are, are ratcheting up notch by notch, when marital pressure is, is coming in or relationships or friendships or roommate trouble is, is, is pressing at all sides of you, where do you run? And David's saying, God, God's the one you can run to. He's the one you can turn to. And he says this, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. You don't get this on the run. You don't get it in an hour-long worship service. You don't get it half paying attention while you're kind of scrolling and, and binging Netflix and then have your Bible app open. You don't get it like that. It is be still and know intimately, experientially, that God is God. And here, it ends with, the rightful response to God's strength. We've got to pull aside. We've got to recognize that we are not him. When the mountains are falling and the seas are churning, we do not have it within ourselves to change those circumstances. We've got to recognize that God does. We must offer ourselves to him and put our lives and our circumstances and all of the results squarely in God's hands. You see, God is grand and God is all-powerful. And he's magnificent all on his own, even without our attention. 
He's already a refuge and a place of strength with or without our interaction. It just benefits us to recognize him and his welcome into that place of safety and that place of rest. The question for us is, will we recognize him working in our lives? Do we have the attentiveness to God to see where he's working and to partner with him? And I think this is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus. One of the most familiar stories, if you grew up in church, if you maybe even went to church a few times growing up, one of the things, one of the stories we keep coming back to, and rightfully so, is the story about Jesus raising Lazarus. We can find that in John 11. If you're not familiar with it, it'll be up on the screen. You can read along here. It says this, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. This Martha, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I think John goes out of his way to say that. Like, they're good friends. Jesus spent uh, time in, in, in Bethany at their home right before he went to the cross. Like, those are the people that he trusted the most in, in kind of last-minute relational community before he died. These are good friends of his. And here's what it says uh, He loved them, and and when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, check this out, he stayed where he was for two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. It's about a day's journey from where they were to where they are now, so it's, it's possible that Lazarus died about the time that the message got to Jesus Jesus even just delayed it longer. He stayed longer instead of hurry and intervene on what they wanted the timeline to be. Bethany was less than two miles. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. One of the most famous sayings by Jesus Jesus, that's known even by unchurched people, people not connected to religion at all. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across its entrance. Take away the stone, he said, but Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you. You've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here and that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the cloths and let him go. Can you imagine? You imagine the, the pressure, like good friends being sick, friends 
siblings pressuring you, saying, if you would have been here, it would have been different. If you could have just hurried up, why didn't you come? You can do anything because God will grant you that. Why, why, why? So Jesus is feeling this immense emotional pressure from people that he cares deeply about, and they're very close to him. Can you imagine being in that situation? Maybe you have been in that situation, the pressure coming. If you would, would have done this differently, this project would have ended better. If you would have done this, if you would have given a little bit more time, if you would have done the things like I asked you to do, then things would have been better, would have been different. So he's feeling all of that. We know on this side of things, Lazarus is gonna be okay. But Jesus had been telling that, them that all along and they didn't quite grasp what he meant and they maybe didn't quite believe him when he said that he was going to intervene. So all of Jesus' steps are both purposeful and focused. Even the steps that he doesn't take, he does so intentionally. He does that because in, elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he says, the Father and I are one. When you see me, you have seen the Father. I only am about the Father's business. I only do what I see the Father doing. So there's this deep connection that he has with God, that what he does, it's, it's in unity and it's in unison with God the Father and God the Spirit. So not going on the timeline that he was expected to, it's as if God was in that. It, it, it is. God was doing exactly what Jesus was doing. He's an, an, a, a perfect reflection of what the Father's business is like. So he did this on purpose. And I don't think just to prove a point that he could, he could raise dead men and women. I don't think he's just making a point to, to, to be able to say the phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. I think that's all true. But I think he is actually saying something about God's heart And he's saying something about God's speed. The speed in which God acts is the speed of love. And again, he's intentional in the steps that he both takes and the steps that he doesn't take. And it's to reveal himself, but more even than that, it's to be closely connected with his people. For us to be in communion with God so that we can also step intentionally, purposefully, and focused just as the Father, just as Jesus were due if he were us, if we were, he were here now. It's, it's kind of like Jesus wants the deck to be like way stacked against him to be able to say all these things, but to actually show the Father's heart in the midst of that. Because in a world that is spinning faster and faster out of control, what's needed is a people who could step back, they could step out of the fray, They can listen for God's voice and follow his leading for how he wants to show up, how he wants to break cycles, cycles of of sin and evil, poverty and oppression. We need a people that can step back and listen for God's voice and God's timing so that God's power can show up. Jesus slows down and he invites us to adopt his pace which is the pace of love that makes room for him and for others. Uh, Japanese theologian, Kosuke Koyama, wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. This is one of my favorite quotes of like all time. He says this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow 
yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. Think about that. Jesus traveled about three miles an hour because that's like walking and talking pace. And he walked and he talked a lot. For, for th- over three years, he walked and talked with his disciples and his followers. He, he went places to and from at three miles an hour. It's the speed of love. It's the speed that you can get someplace where you're, you're needed, but you can have relationships in the meantime on the way. This is the speed. This, and it's, you know, he's using the metaphorical like three miles an hour to say there's an internal speed when we're able to slow down and not feel rushed or hurried through life that we can make room for God and we can make room for others along the way, okay? It's not just that Jesus is the resurrection and the life when we die and go to be with him, though that does have some persevering hope attached to it. It's also that he's inviting us into a way of being that represents him in our world. It's a pace where we participate in resurrection now and imparts to us a fullness of life now. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says this, love, joy, and peace are the triumvirate at the heart of Jesus's kingdom vision. All three are more than just emotions. They are overall conditions of the heart. They aren't just pleasant feelings, They are the kinds of people we become through our apprenticeship to Jesus who embodies all three ad infinitum. And all three are incompatible with hurry. Not only does hurry keep us from love, joy, and peace of the kingdom of God, the very core of what all human beings crave, but it also keeps us from God himself simply by stealing our attention. And with hurry, we always lose more than we gain. When we hurry, we lose the ability to be near Jesus and fully receive the grace he wants to give us. Instead of being full of love, joy, and peace, we are full of fear, loathing, and anxiety. I mean, ask me how I know, people. I don't don't preach this from a lack of experience. Ask my family. I'm very full of the fallen ways of of, of fear, loathing, and anxiety. So I'm a progress. I'm a work in, in progress that Jesus is working on. And yet, I'm a practitioner, I think I have a few things that I can maybe offer that helps us take steps towards Jesus to be more like him. Because first we have to be with him. We become like him then. And then we do the things that he does. So let's get practical. Let's look at that. So I think there's, there's, there's probably more dimensions of this, but there's really four categories when I think of like a slowed down pace and where that can show up. First, it's in our relationships. Okay, an unhurried life was a with posit, will positively influence our relationships because we all know what it's like to sit across from the person who's constantly distracted, kind of half there, scrolling, answering the phone, interrupting you, not really listening to what's going on in in your heart or in your life, and they're really kind of self-absorbed with all their problems and their issues. That's a person who is hurried. And we know what it's like to both sit across the table and we know what it's like to be that person as well. Unhurried souls, though, will make space for each other. Eye contact will be prioritized. Questions will be probing and open-ended. Welcome isn't just a scripted word on a farmhouse sign in someone's perfectly manicured kitchen. 
as seen on Instagram, but it's a lived reality where you pass through this force field of hospitality and are welcomed into it. It's like this gravitational pull into someone's life. That's what it means to live unhurried in a relationship. So you can begin offering a slowed down friendship in a couple ways. First is to put down your screens. I've even heard of friends going out to a meal and they put all their phones face down and the first person to pick it up has to pay for the whole meal. I double dog dare you to do that. I think that's great. And if you're married or you have kids, give special attention to them during important times of the day. I, I learned something, I think probably from a throwaway line that Alicia Hilligai said, who's our family pastor. Uh, she mentioned the nine most important minutes of a child's day. And I'm like, okay, I'm listening. When is that? Is it like days off and you're kind of throwing the ball around? No, it's the first three minutes in the morning when they wake up. Those are important. The first three minutes when they get back from school and the last three minutes before they go to bed. And I just remember that really stuck in my heart because (laughs) I have two boys. I love them. The first thing up is lights on, get up, let's go. (laughs) Um, The first three minutes when they get home from school, yeah, yeah, what do you want for a snack? We don't have that, sorry, next. (laughs) Back to work. For me, and the last three minutes is usually like me doing some WWE wrestling with them off the top rope, and then like, good night. My wife's always like, will you quit We're riling them up? I'm like, we have, we have good times. But I'm like, <laughs> I listened to Alicia talk about that, and I shifted my whole perspective to be like slower, to go in and rub their backs in the morning. Hey, buddy, wake up. And not, like, this is not natural for me. It takes intentionality. It takes, I mean, I really think that was the voice of God speaking through her that I've got to shift because I don't have many more years left with them. And I'm, I'm in a hurry to get stuff done and I don't want them to feel like they're in a home of hurry where they're kind of like projects or uh, uh, inconveniences to interrupting my day. I, I want them to know that I love them. I want my wife to know that I love her. We, we prioritize on our Sabbath. Often we do date night, just the two of us. And we just get out of the house and we go spend time one-on-one and we try to not talk about work or we try not to talk about issues it's, we're a work in progress, y'all. But we, we get time just face-to-face, sitting close together. Sometimes in a, in a noisy environment, we're kind of leaning in. That's, that's good time to spend regularly. So, secondly, shows up in our recreation, a slowed-down life. Recreation looks different. Recreation is different than amusement. You know, amuse means literally without inspiration. There are many of us Amusing, Neil Postman wrote a great book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. We're, we're using devices and screens and all sorts of things to distract us from the hurry of our week, to kind of like get into a nothing box, a nothing part of our brain, just to cope and then go back and do it again next week. But recreation is literally allowing the Holy Spirit to recreate within us. It's enjoyment of the time that we have off and slowed down. So here's a few things. Find a leisurely hobby, like something that you can enjoy doing that you don't get paid for. Make sure that you're not, you don't have these like in the back of your brain uh, expectations that you can spin this off into a side hustle because it will become another job. You need leisurely activity. This is so different than what I would tell people in my 20s. I'm like, let's go hard for Jesus. You know, we were told to have passion. We were told like God doesn't accept seashells when you stand before him. 
We were told to be radical. I've been trying to do that. And I believe there's a deep passion that we were supposed to have for God. But God took a whole 24-hour day, whatever that means, to have time off with his creation. Like we've been told, um, you know, the devil doesn't take a, a day off, so we shouldn't either. Or idle hands are the devil's playground. How many of you grew up hearing that stuff? And I'm telling you, that's a lie. Those are lies to get you feel stressed out and anxious and in some ways to get church leaders to manipulate congregations and doing more for free. I'll just be honest with you. We should be able to sniff that kind of manipulation out and say, I need rest so I can connect with God. And here's the, here's the open secret. I have a lot of open secrets, by the way. You guys like me better because I take a Sabbath day. You, like a 24-7, always on call, always needed, always stressed out, Josh is no fun to be around. It's no fun. And I would just imagine many of you, many of you probably cope better and handle it better than I do, but you're probably deep down the same way. And if you could find a leisurely activity, your families might actually like you a little bit better in the long run, okay? So if, uh, if you work like in a cubicle, and you do like thought work, maybe take up woodworking, try it out, try to do something physical and active with your hands that takes skills of, that, that you have to learn something and apply it. If you are a skilled laborer, maybe do something like learn a language, stretch your, your mind a bit more, right? So leisure, I find oftentimes is, it's in the, the opposite kind of category that you work in so that you can be holistically well-rounded as an individual, okay? Uh, many of us always talk with this in our group, and I was like, hey, who did a, who had a hobby during the, the pandemic, during the lockdown? And it's like, who, who baked bread during any of us in here? Do you guys bake bread? You try that out. I mean, some of you are like, I tried it. I don't know. I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> I'm not taking volunteers for communion bread. Okay, don't worry. You're off the hook. But like a lot of times, because we were uh, a lot of the lockdown, we just had this time and to not kind of go insane or whatever, we, we tried things because we could only be on a screen. We could only be in Zoom meetings so many hours a day. So we did puzzles was another example. We learned an instrument or dusted off our guitar and, and fell in love with it again. What, what did you do during lockdown that maybe you need to revisit because it was actually something that kept you not busy, but it kept you engaged in a leisurely activity, right? So secondly, join a social club, a book club, bowling, rotary, Join a, join a group at church, something that connects you and ask that you commit your time and attention to it and to relationships, that you give back through that group. Play. I think play is an undervalued expression of the joy of God. You may not realize it, but our God is a God of play. He took a whole day off as a culmination of creation just to spend time. Imagine this, when Adam opened his eyes for the first time, when Eve opened her eyes for the first time, what was the expression on God's face? Knowing everything that he knew about what they were going to do, what's God's expression on his face towards his creation? Is it anger? Is it apathy? Because I think it's a smile. I think we have a God of play. He made all of this up. He made butterflies to dance on the wind and, and, and deer to frolic in the meadow. He made brooks that babble that somehow kind of restore our soul. 
And he did that because he's creative. He's an artist. And he wants to invite you into that, to play. So play with your kids. Learn a game. Take up poker. Don't make big bets. But, you know, like play. Enjoy. Challenge yourself through that. And then finally, take a nap. Sometimes the best thing I can do is just take a nap. You know, when Jesus literally had the whole world's problems hanging on his shoulders and the lives of his disciples in the balance, he still had time for a nap. I love that. And I napped often to the glory of God. Okay? Third, we're kind of wrapping up here. So, okay, third, habits. In our busy and noisy world, it's easy to get distracted and have important things be drowned out amongst the fierce competition for your attention. So there's two habits. There's maybe these two practices that you want to fold in to this practice of eliminating hurry. The first is the discipline of noticing. Sometimes no, called holy noticing or divine attentiveness. It's a spiritual habit where you intentionally slow down and make a thoughtful effort to see the beauty and goodness in the world. It, it might be as simple as driving the long way home to enjoy the sunset for a few more moments. It could be going around, walking around the park slowly without headbuds in. To take in conversations around you to listen to the birds and other wildlife and the rustling of the leaves. It's a noticing of what's already going on in our world with a special attentiveness to God's creative goodness. And then secondly is the daily examine. It's a spiritual habit passed down from St. Ignatius of Loyola. Lots of versions that you can Google and find, but it has the same basic ingredients. It's done twice a day, usually midday and then in the evening or night. Where you become aware, you pause, you become aware of God's presence. You, you wait for one, co- one thought of consolation, which is like a, like a point at which you move towards God during the day. And one desolation, which is one moment where you moved away from God's presence during the day. And then you pray for comfort of the spirit and you look towards tomorrow. It's very simple. It can take two minutes. It can take an hour, just depending on how much time you want to give to it. But it's simple, and, and, and people all over the world for hundreds and hundreds of years have practiced this. In fact, if you've ever been in a group and, and they've asked you, do you have a high or a low that you want to share from your week, your day? It's that same practice, highs and lows, consolation, desolation. Where did you see God in the midst of both of those things? Okay. And then finally, this fourth category, slow down challenges. Because I believe we need challenges. We need to actively work against impatience, hurry, and busyness and embrace slowness throughout the day. It's, patience is like a muscle, right? But here's what I'm concerned with is that for a lot of us, patience looks like, okay, I feel inconvenienced and therefore I'm going to take out my phone and scroll. That's not really patience. That's distraction, right? So here's some things, some challenges. You won't like these. You don't have to do all of these things. This, none of, this, this, these four categories and these lists aren't checkboxes. It's maybe you could do these things. Maybe this is a suggestion. You might not want to do any of these things next, but get in a longer line at the checkout counter. Like, you know how you're always looking, like who's got the most stuff? Who's in the shortest line? Pick the longest line with the most stuff and then stand there attentively. Oh, there's part of me that just goes, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Engage in awkward small talk, maybe with a neighbor, maybe with your cashier, your barber. 
Actually make eye contact and pay attention to them. Drive five miles under the speed limit. <laughs> Sorry, someone, I think someone's binding Satan over here somewhere. <laughs> Parent your phone. Uh, we're, I'm not great at this, but one of the practices that I want to get better at is putting my phone to bed a couple hours before I go to bed. Just like I put my kids to bed before I go to bed, my device needs to have downtime. I need to have downtime from my device. And then finally, this might be the hardest one for some of us. Instead of saying yes to additional obligations, politely say no. Do you know, no is a complete sentence. Okay, so in hearing all this, I can imagine, I can imagine there's some yeah buts, right? There's some like, I don't, I don't think this is going to work for me. One of those might be like, isn't slowing down just for the privileged? Like, don't you have to be at a certain station in life, certain season of life, certain amount of money in the bank account to even think about slowing down and taking time off and away? Can, can slowing down really happen in our culture? I was mentioning to our group, like we used to live in, in the United States where uh, blue laws existed where culture actually enabled the practice of Sabbath and slowing down by businesses closing on Sunday. Now, many of us are having to juggle work and church and and days off on Sunday. Our culture no longer enables that, right? So I know there's a cultural pressure. I've lived that too before becoming a pastor, showing up to work, being okay to to take hours uh, or do extra work during uh, when I would be worshiping with my community. So I understand that. But I don't think this is a privileged position, and I hope I ha- I've made the case for how good it can be when we embrace a slowed-down life. Now, what I will say is that there are seasons in our life where rest looks different. Maybe, uh, Sarah was talking about, maybe you can't get a whole 24-hour period of Sabbath. We understand that. We see you. We hear you, okay? But I think this is this may be not idealistic, but is an ideal to work towards, So I'll say this, to the overworked, stressed out professional, we see you, okay? To the teen trying to navigate school and a social life, sports and clubs, we see you as well. To the frazzled, sleepless parents of a newborn, like, we see you, dude, we see you, okay? To the always on the go student, we see you, we hear you, we care for you, we love you. And you know what? God sees you too. He sees what you're trying to do. He sees your moments of connection where you reach out to him, moments of crisis where you really need to have him show up. He sees you and he cares for you. And that's why we're here talking about rest and eliminating hurry because God wants to invite you in. He will give you grace for this. If you make some of these hard decisions by saying, I need to say no more, I need to subtract things and let things go from my life, he will meet you there with grace so that I do believe you'll find more time in your day to connect with him and with others and slow down, okay? My hope is that this message doesn't pile blame and condemnation. You don't see it as a bunch of checkboxes. You see it as a bunch of things that you're not living up to. It's not meant to be that. It's really an invitation, a better way of life, a better way of being. So finally, I wanna end with this thought by Ruth Haley Barton. She says this, there have to be times in your life when you move slow, times when you walk rather than run, settling into each step. There have to be times when you stop and gaze admiringly at loved ones, 
marveling that they have been given to you for this life. Times when hugs linger and kisses are real, when food and drink are savored with gratitude and humility rather than gulp down on your way to something else. There have to be times when you read for the sheer pleasure of it, marveling at the beauty of words and the endless creativity in putting them together. Times when you settle into the comforts of home and become human once again. There have to be times when you light a candle and find the tender place inside you that loves or sorrows or sings and you pray from that place. Times when you let yourself feel, when you allow the tears to come rather than blinking them back because you don't have time to cry. There have to be times to sink into the soft body of yourself and love what you love simply because love itself is grace. Times when you sit with gratitude for the good gifts of your life that get lost and forgotten in the rush of things. Times to celebrate and play, to roll down hills, to splash in water, or make leaf piles, to spread paint on paper or walls or each other. There have to be times to sit and wait for the fullness of God that replenishes body, mind, and soul, if you can even stand to be so full. There has to be time for the fullness of time, or time is meaningless. Now, I want you just for a moment to imagine your perfect day off, your perfect Sabbath, your perfect day of slowing down and rest. What is it that you're doing that you're enjoying? And a simple step to slowing down is just to go and do those things now, okay? So I wanna suggest a practice And we've actually broken this up because we want, if you're just starting out to put this into practice, we want to give you a beginning practice. That could be, and and that's to incorporate into your rule of life and to make it a, a habit in your rhythm of life. It may be starting out just inviting a friend out for coffee or a meal and allowing the conversation to take as long as possible. Now, here's the thing with that. You have to push through the awkward. Now, I'm not going to do, there's a whole teaching you can do on all of that. Just want to suggest no end time to that coffee or that meal with a friend or loved one, okay? A baseline practice where we're trying to get everyone to, and if we we believe that everyone could practice this together, we would be holistically healthy as a church. Pause twice during the day to pray the examine, okay? And like I said, you can Google that and find ways and and example prayers and stuff to pray. So with that, I want to uh, invite the worship team and our communion servers up. Why don't you stand with me? I want to tell you that next week, Pastor Ben is going to talk about the practice of self-care and rolling that into a rhythm of a rule of life. Okay, so I hope you can come back for that. So we are practicing communion or the Lord's Supper every week uh, as we uh, uh, do this rule of life and this practice on resting. And so we welcome anyone who is in a right relationship with God through Jesus and a right relationship with others, specifically in the community of Christ. Communion, I I read it recently, uh, there's a pastor that said it perfectly. Communion isn't for perfect people. It's for people who recognize they need grace. So no, it's it's not a place where everything in your life has to be perfectly lined up and then Jesus welcomes you to come eat with him. It's a place where we find rest and relationship in God and he gives more grace there. So if you would, um, we're gonna come up the middle aisle here in a moment. You can do communion, you can grab it and return to your seats. You can find people in your group and do that with them, or you can just pause for a moment and do it here. It's really up to you how you would like to practice this with us together. But what we would like to do is together 
say the Lord's Prayer. So this is from Matthew 6, uh, verse 9, and we'll say it together, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, amen and amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.